Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And on the show today, our interview on the show today is going to be with David French. But I just want to set it up by telling you that David French is a very good thinker, a very good writer, and every once in a while I will drop him a line after I read a... In fact, I think every once in a while might just literally be once. But about a month and a half ago, he wrote a column, and it was in the wake of Claudine Gay's firing at Harvard, and he's a good thinker on the First Amendment. Sometimes we disagree. But he writes because, you know, Harvard, UPenn, MIT, all private schools. And he said, you know, why should private schools have differing free speech rights than public schools? He writes, academic freedom advocates have long called for the nation's most prestigious private universities to protect free speech by using First Amendment principles to inform campus policies. After all, should students and faculty members at Harvard enjoy fewer free speech rights than, say, those at Bunker Hill Community College? And I said, mwah, chef's kiss. Because so often, a writer, perhaps a lazier writer, perhaps a writer who just misses the opportunity for the telling detail, will fall back on a bit of a cliche. Should Harvard have less rights than state you, they might say? This is the equivalent of a political writer saying he can't get elected dog catcher or describing a small town as a podunk town, thus giving up the possibility of invoking, say, black gum Oklahoma. Or Town, Oklahoma, both census-designated places in Sequoia County, Oklahoma, by the way. So I dropped him a line. He said, I've been to Bunker Hill Community College. It's a real place. I knew it to be a real place. I looked it up on Twitter, formerly X. No, currently X, formerly Twitter. And there I found they were just tweeting about this one day. They were no doubt proud of the prowess of their women's basketball team. And there I was ogling at the score. You shouldn't ogle at women basketball players, but certainly ogle at outsized scores because the score they just posted against Bronx Community College, they won the game, squeaker, 90 to 17. This, if you don't follow women's community college basketball, seems like mm, big point differential. The next game, they lose actually a close one, 67-63 against Northern Essex Community College. Then they rebound against Roxbury Community College. Similar output to the Bronx, 95-18. I go back and I say, I have never seen disparate scores like the Bunker Hill Women's College basketball team start the season against Kingsborough Community College, my local community college, go waves. They lose 85-29. They come back. They lose closely to UConn, Avery Point, 82-79. Then they win their first win of the season, 92-31. to Wild, wild swings. Every once in a while, a 2-0 score is noted. This is a forfeit. They give you the actual score of the games they played, even if it didn't count. Bunker Hill women beat Quinn Sigamond women, 75-36. And I was especially drawn to their result against Springfield Technical Community College. Officially goes down as a 2-0 loss. But if you go and delve into the box score, you will find that the Bunker Hill women beat the Springfield Technical Community College Rams. Lady Rams, I hope they don't call these women to be technical. But the final score of that one was 117 
to 21. Behind Jordan Ferreira's 58, and of course, Empress Nordius chipping in 17 of her own for the Bulldogs of Bunker Hill Community College. Out of, oh, shall we say, a perverse curiosity, I looked up the results of Springfield Tech. (sighs) They're a little dispiriting, but I want the Rams to stick at it. Springfield Tech, well, their most recent game, they lost 100 to 15. This on the heels of starting the season with losses of 104 to 14, 90 to 11, and the telltale 2 nothing against Bunker Hill, which we know to be their 117 to 21 actual loss. Three games into the season, Springfield Tech, a cumulative 311 points against, 46 points for. But then they have some closer games. They actually pull one out against Holyoke Community College, their only win of the season other than by forfeit. So I am uh, somehow drawn to checking on the schedule of the Holyoke Community College women's basketball team. It doesn't get much cheerier from there. They start the season with 75 to 21 and 92 to 31 losses, and their most recent contest was a... uh, Was it drubbing at the hands of the Community College of Rhode Island? Not for a whole state with its own community college, where the ladies of Holyoke community are just but one community. They lose 82 to 17. I'm not quite sure. You know, let's just say if losing builds character, let us hope that these monumental scores are just going to churn out many, many young women of the Region 21 New England area with lots and lots of character. And thank you, David French, for that sidewind path uh, I could have gone through the town of Blackgum, Oklahoma, but instead, Region 1 Women's Community College Basketball. David French, oh, on the show today, I do that first. Do you think Israel is hurting Joe Biden and his re-election chances? I would think you'd think that. That's what we're told to believe. You could tell by my tone. I may be questioning it. It's what I do. And now, David French is a former attorney columnist for the New York Times and co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast for The Dispatch. We shall discuss the many legal cases trying to keep Donald Trump off the ballot, or as they would say, do justice. We'll also get into some discussion of how the Supreme Court has acted in big cases in the past. Bush v. Gore. Will that inform our present and future? David French up next. We're joined once more by David French, a keen legal mind. David's a columnist for the New York Times, and he hosts, co-hosts the Advisory Opinions podcast for The Dispatch, along with Sarah Isger. There he and Sarah debate issues such as, is Donald Trump an insurrectionist who should be disqualified from the ballot? I'm going to take Sarah's role in this particular debate. (laughs) And it's honest. I actually agree with her. So little difference in in the role David normally plays when he joins us on The Gist. Welcome back, David. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I will give you what I think is the best argument against disqualifying Donald Trump. We heard some of the worst arguments, (laughs) and they were in his actual brief to the Supreme Court, where he spends or his lawyers spend a lot of time arguing that the president is not an officer of the United States, as the term is used in the Constitution. This seems farcical, although I guess a lower court judge did credit it enough to uh, let it guide her decision on this in Colorado. Before we get to the good arguments, what should we make of that, which I identify as a very bad argument? I think it's a 
very weak argument. Uh, it goes against the normal rules of how you read a document in law, which mean which the normal rules are you read a, a, a legal document, whether it's a constitution or a statute or a regulation, and you give words their ordinary meaning, unless the actual document gives it a different meaning. So in statutes, you will have often a definition section. In, in this statute, this word means, and it'll define all the words. But if you don't have that, you just give the word its ordinary meaning. And by ordinary meaning, uh, Trump's an officer. <laughs> He's an officer of the United States. He's an officer, been an officer under the United States. And um, the other thing about it is not only under the ordinary meaning of the term officer is Trump an officer, the way the statute is, or the, the, the constitutional provision is actually set up is it, it has really two categories of people it applies to, officers and elected officials who are not officers. So a senator is not an officer, a member of Congress is not an officer of the United States. So they are they are included within the scope though of this constitutional provision. So it's trying to hit as widely as possible. This is not language that is narrowing. This is language in the section that is broadening. And so I think that argument's gonna struggle. Yeah, they also have, and this is uh, not cherry picking the bad arguments. They really relied on this one. They also have a portion of the brief which argues that section three, this is uh, the disqualifying section. Section three applies only to those who took an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. But the president swears a different oath, which is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I was just thinking of many people's marriage vows and the husband <laughs> who says, no, I promise to support and uphold you, but not to. <laughs> this is yeah. the very definition of legalistic, isn't it? Yeah. So what they're trying to do there, there is a method to the madness, Mike. So what they're trying to do is Take a court, which they're going to, they're assuming is very reluctant to knock Trump off the ballot, very reluctant to do it. And they're just trying to give them hooks to hang their reasoning on. So yes. you don't like the officer argument? Well, here's a different one. You don't like that argument? Here's a different one. And and they are all strained, uh, Mike. They're strained, but they're not frivolous. And so that's why, that's where there's a distinction between where, you know, people will say, well, do you think he should be disqualified? And I think it's overwhelmingly obvious from the text and history of the 14th amendment that yes, he should be, but there are non-frivolous arguments against it. And so that I, I think that there are, uh, there's a stronger argument that he should be removed, but there are non-frivolous arguments against removing him. And they're trying to pop up a bunch of them to see if one or two or three of them will stick. Right. Fill up at the all-you-can-eat buffet. And not right. one of the dishes might be uh, nourishing, but you add it all up. <laughs> Your belly is full and maybe you get a stomachache yeah. and a, an insurrectionist president. Which brings me to what I think <laughs> is the good argument. <laughs> Judge Samore wrote this in his dissent. And it was a 4-3 dissent. So. Right. We do have the specter of if one human being in the United States changed their mind, we'd have a different president. That's a little bit odd. The presidential elections normally don't come down to that, although the election between yeah John Quincy Adams and Jackson may have. Anyway, 
Samore wrote, our government cannot deprive someone of the right to hold public office without due process of law. Even if we are convinced that a candidate committed horrible acts in the past, dare I say, engage in insurrection, there must be a procedural due process before we can declare the individual disqualified from public office. And he went on to say, thus, based on its interpretation of Section 3, our court sanctions these make our court, meaning Colorado, sanctions these makeshift proceedings employed by the district court, which lacked basic discovery. So this is his saying what the due process Donald Trump didn't get to arrive at the conclusion he was an insurrectionist. It lacked basic discovery. It lacked the ability to subpoena documents, to compel witnesses, workable timeframes, to adequately investigate and develop defenses, and an opportunity for a fair trial, to adjudicate a federal constitutional claim, a complicated one at that. Now, I understand that it's not criminal law that the justices of Colorado are deciding in this case. But the reason that we have those safeguards is because they indicate this is the epitome of justice. These are what we as a country, as a legal system, have defined as affording a person uh, the greatest amount of rights. And I would say, I agree with some more, in this case, even if I think Donald Trump was an insurrectionist, this is not the process by which that should be determined. It's such an important determination. We need a better process than, say, the four justices in Colorado saying, I followed the January 6th commission, or I read a bunch of articles in the New York Times. What do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, they did have a hearing hearing, um, multi-day hearing in, on, in the case. And so, you know, there, the, the issue here, Mike, is what processes do? I'm going to agree with you, due process should attach, but what processes do? And this is actually an interesting question under the law often, because the process that you're due depends on the strength of the liberty interest in constitutional law. So for example, death penalty is the ultimate penalty the amount of due process that we give people before the death penalty is imposed is very considerable. Even if you're a normal criminal defendant, you're not subject to the death penalty. Um, potential imprisonment is an extreme deprivation of liberty. There is an, a considerable considerable amount of due process uh, there. Um, the right to run for president is a considerably weaker liberty interest. This is not a, there's not a strong liberty interest. And then also what you have to understand is when this was, when this was enacted, uh, it was designed to apply to thousands of people, thousands yeah. of people and people who wore uniforms and people who wore uniforms and had it against the United yep, States. They yes. took had, had titles like major so-and-so of the seventh Tennessee and all of this. And so. It was designed from the ground up to be a blanket bar on a bunch of people, thousands of people. So there's a lot of reasons why the, the actual constitutional provision does not include specific requirements, for example, for a conviction. There were not thousands of trials being conducted against Confederates. In fact, Confederates were by and large, given amnesty informally. And then formally in 1868, they were given amnesty around Christmas by President Johnson at the time. And so there was no legal process adjudicating people Confederates. And so the question was, uh, what do we do? What do we do? And until the Amnesty Act of 1872, the answer was, well, we're not prosecuting them criminally, but we are barring them from holding office. And so the there was no 
way, really, practically, in reality, to sort of say, well, we're going to have trials for all of these people. Right. Um, now, if somebody wanted to contest that they were actually a Confederate, uh, you know, uh, they could challenge their exclusion from the ballot in court. Trump is challenging his exclusion from the ballot. But this was never, ever, ever, ever from the beginning designed to be part of some sort of uh, criminal trial type process. Right. I agree. I mean, that is true factually. And I agree that that wouldn't have been necessary in the case of the Civil War. There were there was no question that the Confederate soldiers were insurgents. There was, in fact... Uh, the very fact that there had to be an amnesty, it's uh, sort of similar to Gerald Ford giving the pardon to Nixon and Nixon accepting it showed that Nixon was guilty of some crime. The very fact that they had to give an amnesty indicated that some crime was committed, uh, insurgency that wasn't even contested. This is contested, and I do think more plausibly than the Confederacy. So that's one point. And the second point is you're right. The right involved here is Donald Trump's right to run for president. It's not, say, Donald Trump going to jail. That's the Latin term. That's the de jure right. But the de facto right really is the enfranchisement of the people who might otherwise vote for him. And because of our hodgepodge system of the electoral college, the enfranchisement of all the people who live outside the jurisdictions of Maine or Colorado who might be impacted by the fact that he can't, practically speaking, get the votes from those states. Don't you think? I do think that's the case. But you know, the Constitution here, um, much like it does with age limits, much like it does with the natural born citizen requirement, um, has this as, it's a, this is a threshold matter. And the question that I have, Mike, here is not the factual determination here is much less did Trump participate in January 6th, and it is much more we know that he did, mm-hmm. and we watched the whole thing happen. He was as obviously there on January 6th as Lee was at Gettysburg, right? And he the, the question is the things that we know that he said, the speech was recorded, we have the speech. Um, these events that we know occurred, do they constitute an insurrection or rebellion participating in or providing aid or comfort to? The issue has not been, did Trump say things to the crowd or not? In other words, the factual dispute, the factual disputes here are really limited. Um, what is at issue is more of a definitional dispute. If you take all of the things that we know that Donald Trump did, and we take all of the things that we know happened on January 6th, because remember, um, they might not have been wearing gray yeah. uh, and they might not have had ranks, right. but we had cameras right. there. Right. And, and <laughs> you Trump know, so, might not have been mounting a challenger as Lee did. Uh, maybe Stephen Miller, who wrote his speech, uh, serves that purpose in our <laughs> analogy. But I do think, I agree with you. If you ask me, based on me being impaneled uh, in a jury where the evidence was just what's been presented by the January 6th committee, I would say, I think that that's an insurgency. But since no court has made that determination, and since the prosecutor who could have brought those charges decided not to, I think that's an important distinction. It is still very much out there as 
I think more ambiguous than you are giving it credit for. I don't know what the percentage is, but I can imagine a case where a good lawyer could marshal facts, not to becloud my uh, judgment, but where I would say, yeah, I don't think under Brandenburg, under insurgency, under insurrection, it quite fits that. I think that that's plausible. And because I think that's plausible, I don't think a Colorado court should go there. But I guess we take it as you just think it's not plausible for a fair-minded person to conclude that. I guess what's confusing about that response to me, Mike, is this is what judges do. Oh, yeah, I know. Is they have... They have two competing arguments, and it's often the case that one of the two arguments or both of the arguments are at least meet a threshold of plausible, um, but they adjudicate anyway. And I think the interesting question here with Trump, now I would find the due process argument around this much more compelling if, there w- if someone could point to me a factual dispute that was that that Trump would be able to contest that was included in the Colorado court's opinion that he would say as a matter of fact that's not correct um there was and and I I could contest that as a matter of fact now that's that's more interesting to me than the question of well we have a a set of facts that nobody disputes and what I'm questioning is the legal conclusion drawn from the set of facts that nobody disputes. And what the Colorado Supreme Court did was take a look at essentially what are the the set of facts about January 11th that are in the public domain by this point and ruled based on that. There was no uh, additional sort of, well, what we have also found is that in addition to all of this, he engaged in direct, was in direct radio communication with the Proud Boys throughout. Like there's no new information there that Trump could contest. This is exactly classically what judges do is they look at a set of facts and then draw legal conclusions. And I think the, the really interesting argument to me, Mike, is less the due process argument because I keep having this conversation with people about Trump and due process and what are the facts that you would have introduced that you didn't get to? Um, and there's usually a kind of a blank look there because uh, there there isn't a set of facts that they were wanting to introduce that they didn't get to introduce. They di- disagreed with the legal conclusion from that set of facts. And I think that's, I think the really interesting argument to me, much more than was there enough process. And look, Mike, the, the Supreme Court might agree with you. The Supreme Court might hang a, a ruling for Trump on that hook. I would think that would be a mistake to hang it on the due process hook. I think the much more interesting argument is the, uh, was this an insurrection or rebellion argument? And what does what is Trump's participation, to what extent does he meet the test of either participating in or providing aid and comfort for it? So what do you think they will decide? They will decide it wasn't an insurrection or they will, it's so, it will be so attractive for them to grab for more procedural or he didn't say support the constitution type arguments. Yeah. So Mike, it's a heavy lift to walk into the Supreme Court of the United States and ask them to do something they've never done before in an incredibly consequential way. Now they've done that before, Bush v. Gore. You know, Bush v. Gore um, the Supreme Court steps in, ultimately decides this, decides the outcome, and nobody freaked out about it beyond the sort of the normal level of partisan right. anger. But I think they had to. I think there was a there was no choice for them not to choose. Same here. They had to act. 
they had to act here. They had to enter. They have to decide this. Um, so just like they ultimately had to decide um, the Florida, you know, the issues arising out of the floor out of Florida in 2000, they have to decide this. And there is going to be that, but still you're going to make a very heavy lift to ask the court to do something that's never done before. That is this contentious. And so I would say the odds are against Trump being disqualified. And I think what's a shame about saying that is as I say it, I say it not because I think the law is on Trump's side. I think the law and the facts are against Trump. I just think it is such a heavy lift. It is such a serious ask of the Supreme Court to do this for a lot of the reasons that caused people to be kind of really nervous almost as soon as they heard about this Colorado Supreme Court situation. They know this is explosive. They know this situation is dangerous. And I think there's just going to be a profound reluctance to be the entity that finally does it, that just does it rather than punting to the American people. Even though, honestly, Mike, the more I look at the history, the more I look at the text, the more I look at this, the stronger the case gets. But it's still a very hard thing to ask the Supreme Court to do. Do you think it will be a 6-3 decision? No, I tend to think... I know. I tend to think no. I I, I, th- I think that there's going to be a huge effort made to bridge ideological gaps and divides. Um, and I think that's good. I think there's going to be a big effort made there. Um, so I would I would not expect a six three, but I would be surprised if it was unanimous. And we will continue our conversation with David French over on Pesca Plus. He knows so much. Let's ask him. We shall discuss what happened if Colorado's ruling is allowed to stand and what would happen if Donald Trump actually went to jail. You can subscribe to Pesca Plus now for free. Try it out for free. Cancel any time. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, privately told Joe Biden, President of the United States, that he, Netanyahu, supports a two-state solution at the war's end, and then publicly said, no, I don't. In any future arrangement, Israel needs security control over all territory west of the Jordan. I tell this truth to our American friends. The prime minister needs to be capable of saying no to our friends, saying no when necessary, and saying yes when possible. What a good friend. The question is, why would Netanyahu say this? The answer isn't because it's true. I mean, it is true. Of course it's true that it will be all but impossible to achieve a two-state solution, especially in the near term. And I would say also, of course, it's true that Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution. He would like to keep the Palestinians stateless. But a necessary component of democracy is not always to say things that might strike you as true. Let us examine the Netanyahu decision tree. Who does it help for Netanyahu to publicly reject the two-state solution, as he just did? Doesn't help Joe Biden. He just lied to Joe Biden. Doesn't help the possibility of continued funding from America for the war. The Americans are more committed to funding Israel than they are Ukraine, but that's not guaranteed. What he said makes it more difficult. 
No, the only person this helps is Benjamin Netanyahu, who is saying this for his domestic audience, specifically the portions of his domestic audience on the right, to whom he owes his status, his success, and even his freedom. He faces corruption charges. Have you heard about cases 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000? Those are charges. Those are trials. They're ongoing. Wait, where's case 3,000, you ask? It's underwater. It is literally a corruption case concerning the procurement of submarines. He's not been charged in that one, though there does seem to be bribery. Case 1000, by the way, alleges he took bribes from the executive producer of Fraggle Rock. I mean, the guy has other credits too, Little Women, LA Confidential, Gone Girl, but Arnon Milchin did produce Fraggle Rock. I want you to know that. And he did testify in court against Netanyahu. The point is Netanyahu is positioning himself as the one essential man who will stand up even to the Americans when the time comes. Netanyahu is quite unpopular. And this is an extremely cynical strategy that to a pretty decent extent puts the war effort at risk, as I've detailed. I am not saying Netanyahu wasn't appalled and didn't cry like I assume every Israel cried after the Hamas attacks of October 7th. I am noting that Netanyahu has made no sacrifice. He's not made any sacrifice I could think of. He hasn't admitted any culpability. He hasn't curtailed his rhetoric in any way. He's made utterances that are being considered right now in the International Court of Justice. Utterances he didn't have to make to rally the public. Utterances he made just to appease the right. And he now gives voice to a selfish sentiment that makes it harder for Israel to pursue its military goals. I sometimes ask myself why I must extend more of my personal credibility on the topic of Israel than the Prime Minister of Israel does. Netanyahu makes it clear again and again he is not leading a country, he's leading a faction. And that brings us to our president, Joe Biden. He has been a better leader for Israel than the leader of Israel has been. But does that hurt Biden domestically here in America? Will Biden's support of Israel hurt him in the next election? You've probably heard this discussed and think the answer is, yeah, it'll hurt him some, can't help. Maybe it won't hurt him enough to cost the election, but it's another headache. You probably thought of the situation in Israel as just, you know, another potential pitfall. You've definitely heard analysis like this. President Biden uh, heads into the new year with some Mm. pretty negative momentum, pretty low poll numbers, real questions uh, and on a Democratic base about his handling of the war. Some good news on the economy, but hasn't really broken through yet. The war, the economy, you don't even have to say which war. It all seems kind of logical. If we were to expand out the part of the sentiment that says the war, we'd get some analysis like this from News Nation. Those 18 to 34 year old demographics do not support President Biden's handling of the war. They're calling for a ceasefire and they tend to be more sympathetic towards the Palestinian side of this conflict. So that's hurting President Biden. And that's true. Members of the Biden base under 30 disapprove of his handling of the conflict, which is to say his support for Israel. Pew says that among those aged 18 to 29, 50% of Democrats strongly or somewhat disapprove of Biden's response to the Israel-Hamas war. 6 to 21% of young people approve or somewhat approve. That's pretty bad. Among Republicans... Fewer disapprove, a net of 42 Republicans in that age group disapprove, fewer 
Republican young people disapprove than Democratic young people. And that goes to show how poorly Biden is doing among young Democrats. But it also literally goes to show that he's doing relatively okay with young Republicans. I mean, not great, but 21% approve or strongly approve of how he's handling the war. Overall, Republicans between 50 and 64, 29% strongly or some would approve, and over 65, 34% of Republicans approve strongly or somewhat. So that's not good. (laughs) That's still, you know, 20 points underwater, even in the best category. But consider that Biden's overall approval rating is 7% among Republicans. Now, are Republicans, the ones who approve of how he's handling Israel and Hamas, are they going to vote for Biden? No, no, no. The great majority won't. But it's possible, it's plausible that some might. Another fair question, are disaffected Dems, the youth, going to vote against him? I think some will sit it out. Do you think a young pro-Palestinian protester whose moral commitments include concerns over colonialism, who uses the phrase genocide Joe, they're going to vote for Donald Trump? No, they are more likely to sit it out if they allow it to affect their vote. The rule in politics is that you do want to turn out your base But it's better to actually flip someone on the other side. It's twice as good. Take one from their column, put one in yours. Israel gives Biden an in as to this ideal outcome in politics. But now let's take the religious breakdown. Here, NBC accurately reports, I'm not criticizing them. This is uh, reporting that you hear echoed elsewhere. Here's NBC. We have talked to numerous uh, Muslim and Arab American voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, Minnesota. These states are all familiar to all of us. And to a person, every single one of them have said they are hearing from multiple voters uh, who are saying that they will not vote for Biden, that they're so upset about the way he's handled the Gaza situation. They feel like he's not been uh, giving as much weight to the lives of Palestinian civilians, and they feel left behind and furious. And so the plan from a lot of Muslim American leaders and groups, and these are not just activists, these are elected officials and you know, turn out the get out the vote groups, they're saying they will definitely turn out their vote next year, but whether they encourage people to vote for Joe Biden or not remains to be seen. Okay, but there's also a constituency that might in fact be appalled if Joe Biden gave into the policy wishes of the American Muslims who you just heard discussed. I'm speaking of Jewish Americans. Now, of course, not all Jews support Israel. Not all Muslims are single-issue voters either. They're both monotheists, not monoliths, right? If Joe Biden were to adopt, say, Rashida Tlaib's stance on the war in Gaza, Joe Biden would be doing great in Michigan. And that state, crucial to his victory last time, does have a little bit over 2% Muslim population. That state really could be lost given the current state of Biden's policies and what's going on with his support of Israel. But you also heard mentioned Arizona. There are 109 Muslims in Arizona, according to the religion census. There's 123,000 Jews. Take Pennsylvania. There's 149,000 Muslims. There's 434,000 Jews. My point is, my point here is a little different than when I was talking about age and party analysis. I'm not talking about flipping anyone. 
I'm talking about the cost of taking one position, which is widely discussed, Joe Biden's support for Israel, versus the cost of taking the opposite position, even a more measured position. You hear so much about the costs of Joe Biden's position on Israel. It seems, I I will say, it will be costly, but net costly, keep in mind, the opposite stance could be even more costly. So my analysis is Michigan's imperiled, and it's imperiled by Joe Biden's stance, but maybe there are opportunities for pickups out there, and maybe, and I think likely, if he were to take the opposite stance, those are his sets of choices, it would hurt him more than his current stance is hurting him. Now, none of this, please don't conclude that I am saying anything he's doing is for gain, political gain. Everything he says and everything he's ever done, his record as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, during the vice presidency, during this conflict, it's it seems abundantly sincere that Joe Biden truly does support Israel. Perhaps more so than his counterpart, who's actually running Israel. But the greatest cost could very well be to contradict his convictions for political gain or to avert political loss, especially because the analysis might be getting gain and cost backwards. That's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. That'd be Corey Warridge's producer, Joel Patterson, just senior producer, Michelle Pescas, in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise on the gist, and you should, what listeners we have, what a demo. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, and thanks for listening. Fraggle Rock.